So who else got a puppy during quarantine? I mean, not who else. Like, I didn't get a puppy myself, but I've had a puppy before, and now I'm currently empathizing for all my friends who got puppies because they're in the middle of potty training that puppy, and they're in the middle of teaching that puppy tricks. And, and when I got a puppy, this was about 10 years ago, uh, I went to the Prairie Village Animal Hospital, adopted a cockapoo, uh, and he was cute. His name was Whitaker, and I got a book from the vet when I adopted Wit. Whitaker became Wit. He was just this cute, cuddly dog. And, and the book was called Dog in Hand by George Gates. And it encouraged me to, when Whitaker disobeyed, misbehaved, to put Whitaker on the ground on all fours. And then to not sit on, we don't sit on dogs, but we cower over dogs. And I would hold him gently I'm not offending any dog owners here today. I'm not trying to do that. But gently put my hand, hands over his head and hold his head to the ground. There was no, nothing malicious about this, but my parents would come over, come over. My brother would come over and wonder, what are you doing to your dog? And it didn't work. You know, I was never able to control my dog. I, we had to rehome Whitaker. We gave him to the Haskins, another family here at Heartland, because it just wasn't working out. Whitaker actually brought out an ugly side in me. I went to anger management counseling because of wit. And uh, that's a different sermon for a different day. But we all exert our power over something, right? Like, you may be like an older sibling, and you know that you have some power. You might be a, a civic official, whether that's a law enforcement officer or uh, a part of our government. You you have authority, right? You have power. You could be just a, a parent in a family dynamic and you have power. There's also this sense that power can be had in the workplace where you supervise employees or you're in a group project and, and you're the leader, you exert power. Well, we come to a a really challenging passage today in the book of Acts. We've been journeying through Acts, and Acts chapter 12 talks about a man in power. And this man is King Herod, and Herod is, is appointed by Rome to be the king of this region. And then there's a group of, of Jesus followers, this religious growing number of people that are following Jesus. And and then there's the masses who aren't following Jesus. They're actually Jewish people who reject this small religious growing numbers claim to Jesus being the Messiah. And they, these three groups, King Herod, the religious masses, and, uh, and God's followers, the early Christians, make up this story. It's intense. I want to read to you in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Look to the screens while I read from my Bible. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. Sound familiar, given our current modern-day circumstances? Somebody in authority squashing some group of people who they don't think worthy of existence. 
It was just a little too real. I had to take a step back and I had to say, God, I want to pass onto a different chapter from the book of Acts. I, I don't want this passage. And, and God invited me into the wrestle and I wrestled with this passage for a few weeks and realized that it was indeed about power, about a man with power exerting his force, about masses with power exerting their force. Herod quite literally sits on the dog. He squashes things. And he realizes that when he does this, he gets approval. And so he begins to capture more and more Christians and putting them to death. Power can destroy or power can lift others up. I want you to hear that again. Power can destroy or power can lift others up. It's really important for the electricity cables to be hung high and for the electricity to be securely fastened and kept inside these wires that hang above us. Otherwise, they would cause havoc and destruction. It's really important for your foot on the gas pedal to have some sense of control over that power because that can wreak havoc if you're not careful behind the wheel of a car. A, A muscle can exert force and punch someone in the face or the same power can be used to lift someone up. We don't have to look very far back to see this destruction in our world's history. If you just go back to World War II and the Holocaust era, we see that six million estimated Jews were killed by the hands of the Nazi war machine led by Adolf Hitler. One of the darkest times in the world's history. And out of that dark time comes, comes one of my heroes, actually. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 12 years old when his older brother lost his life in World War I. And this profoundly shaped Dietrich. Within two years, at the age of 14, so if you're a 14-year-old out there, at the age of 14, Dietrich decided he was going to be a pastor and study theology. He did this and, and had a doctorate by the age of 24 from a German university. And, and now he's, he's actually going to America to get another doctorate degree. He doesn't think much of America when he arrives. He visits some churches and realizes that these churches are filled with scholarly lectures for the elite. But in his class, he's one of three international students that shows up to Union Theological Seminary in 1930 at the age of 24. And this is a picture of his class. There's three international students. There's uh, a couple African-American students. And before you know it, Dietrich hits it off with Frank Fisher. And Frank says, come to my church, the church in Harlem, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And, And he invites him. And this is where Dietrich realizes that Christ, the black Christ, is preached with captivating passion and vividness. Dietrich falls in love with the black church, with with black people and their lives, and he takes a trip down south to where Frank is from, and he is in the Jim Crow South, and he and Frank are going into a restaurant to eat, and he witnesses firsthand, he sees Frank not get served. And this is when Dietrich's mind begins to turn back to Germany. He realizes I'm going back to Germany, to a pre-World War II Germany 
And there are some biases, there are some racially motivated sentiments in Germany. Power can destroy others or it can lift them up. You see, when Dietrich got back to Germany, he decided to organize with a few other leaders something called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church just did this. They confessed that every human being was made in the image of God. And and they started training other pastors to, to teach this from their pulpits because Hitler's picture was actually framed in, in the lobbies of churches in Germany. They had ascribed spiritual authority to Adolf Hitler and, and Bonhoeffer and his friends said, no, this, this is not God's truth. Well, power can destroy or power can lift up and the Nazi power machine destroyed the confessing church banned them from meeting, banned them from speaking publicly, radio addresses, everything. And they had to go underground. And Bonhoeffer and his friends developed an underground seminary at Finkenwald, and they're uh, creating a safe haven for pastors who believe that God's truth reigns and that God's truth means that every human being, Jewish people included, are created in the image of God. There's a moment where Dietrich goes back to America because it's now 1939 and he's like an up-and-coming young leader in the German church. And his friends and family say, you have to get out of here before this thing just really gets chaotic. You have to save yourself, go to America. And so they send Dietrich and Dietrich willingly goes to America in 1939. He gets there and he has the boat ride to think about what he's doing. He gets there and within a day he decides that this is not right. I cannot stay here. If I cannot be involved in the destruction of my German homeland, then I cannot be a part of the rebuilding of my German homeland. And so within a day he gets back on one of the last steamers to cross the Atlantic and go back to Germany. Once he gets there, he joins the Abwehr and, and Dietrich's business card is awesome because it says double agent, pastor, spy. This was his title. I'm going to say that again for you. He was a double agent pastor spy. So he's this guy who joins the Abwehr, which is German intelligence, to seek and find any Jews that are remaining within Germany and to exterminate them. Dietrich joins the Abwehr saying, I will help with this cause. But on the inside, all he's interested in is saving Jews 12 at a time. So he finds out where they are. He puts them in a van. He drives them to Poland. He returns back to Germany and uses this information just to save Germans. And this is what power does when power lifts people up. It lifts people up out from under the wheel of destruction. Power can crush people like the Nazi war machine was or power can lift people up. And this is what Dietrich does in this moment. He takes his cues from Jesus, Jesus who went into the war. Dietrich ran into the war, and Dietrich was modeling his life after Jesus. It's really the way Jesus handles power, using it to serve others and lift them up. In Luke chapter 22, it's one of the final moments of Jesus' life, and he's with his disciples, and they're having what they call the Last Supper, communion, which we're going to celebrate together here at the end of our service. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised to life. And they don't understand it. They don't know where to file this, except he has a a plate with bread on it and some, some wine. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And they 
they take and eat, but they don't understand. And they, they don't understand so much so that they just begin to argue and quibble over who might have the most power in the room. Like, who's the most important out of us? It's like they've not heard what Jesus has said about his impending death, and they're just worried about their status. And Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 22, I want to read this to you. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I among you am among you as one who serves. It's the ultimate moment for Jesus to say, this is how you use your power, to lift somebody up. Dietrich said it this way, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible makes quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. The suffering God can help show us how to suffer with those who need us. Specifically in this moment, in America, in 2020, in Kansas City, it specifically shows us how to suffer with our black brothers and sisters, with people of color. And I, I got to tell you, like, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer is re-entering Germany and he believes that Jewish lives matter, if he was here today in 2020, he would be saying to those who are being crushed under the wheel of race, systemic racism that black lives matter. And for, for you, for any of you, for my friends, I consider you friends, for any of you to insert any other statement as a retort to black lives matter. is ludicrous. Because what we are saying, we black and brown people of color are saying is that our lives haven't mattered. For 500 years, black people's lives haven't mattered. And now they do. We want to say that they do. We're not saying all lives don't matter. And please, like, pitch your political stuff. Like, just take the words at face value. Three simple words, black lives matter. It means something to those of us of color. It means something to the God of the universe who created black people such that they wouldn't experience this kind of systemic racism, and yet they do. If a house is on fire in your neighborhood, you pay attention to the house that's on fire. And so, my friends, my white friends, for you to say that all lives matter is, is for us to look at you and to say, your house is not on fire, though, so your house does matter, but right now there is one house on the block that's on fire, and that's the life 
of black people. Phew! Preachers got to preach, right? Okay? What's your place of power? I got one. You got one. What's your place of power? Is there some civil authority you possess? As a judge, a law enforcement officer, is there some power you possess? Do you have power over a circle of friends? Are you a parent with power inside of a family context? Do you oversee employees in a workplace? And that's your power. What is your place of power? And for you, friends, my white friends, you have power. You are the majority. And for King Herod, for the religious masses, they have power because Rome, the largest empire in the world, has assigned it to Herod. And for the religious masses, they have power simply because they are the masses. And so you, my friends, my white friends, you have power. And and that power is termed white privilege. I want you to consider that for a moment. Some of you have and are wrestling with that and grappling with what that means for your life. Some of you are are pushing against that because you don't want to believe that that might be true. But I just want to tell you as a person of color and friends of color around me, we know it to be true because we don't have the privilege you do. It's okay to be there, by the way. I just don't think it's okay to stay there. Our example is Jesus. And, and some of you might be saying, I don't feel like I have power. I'm barely making the ends meet. And I want to say that that is a micro view of your life, which I am guilty of too. I can't tell you the number of times during this pandemic and racially motivated tense season where I have said, why me? And that is a micro-focused point of view. Jesus takes the macro view. Jesus says to all of humanity, I want to suffer with you. I want to come and enter your existence. I see all of humanity. I died for all of you. The one who created the tree hung on a tree. The one who should have been free gave himself up to captivity. The one who had all power was made to be powerless. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, it like this, that he, he became without sin. And being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So to you, my friends in the white majority, I want to tell you a few things that will help you perhaps understand the plight of people of color. And these resources are available in many places, but there are just a few I want to share with you. One is across our state lines in Missouri. And you can say, oh, that's Missouri. But I think you're forgetting when you say, oh, that's Missouri, that's not me. The citizenship for which you bear as a citizen of the United States of America, not to draw lines, state lines. But in Missouri, people of color are 91% more likely to get pulled over. It's a 2019 Attorney General's um, research study. It's a known research fact also that uh, equally qualified candidates won't get the same treatment because of the name on the application. 
Personally, I've worked here for 15 years. And so I haven't had to like ever dust off the resume since college and like apply for something. But knowing that like my resume will sit on a stack and my name will get different consideration is a big deal. That's a big deal to our black brothers and sisters. People of color are resorting to whitening their resumes, eliminating any trace of minorityness from their resumes so that it might be more palatable and more acceptable to an employer. Friends, you don't get to experience what people of color experience. You don't have people wonder aloud how you got the job you got. You don't have this dilemma with Ancestry.com where you can go back only a generation because the generation before that was a slave. Friends, you don't have to keep your hoodie in the closet. You can run without fear. You can bird watch without repercussions. And unlike George Floyd, a brother in Christ, you can breathe. I call you friends because I think you're ready for this. And so I ask you, what's your place of power? And how are you using that power? I've heard from a number of you that you want to do something, but you don't know what to do. And the first step would be this. This is a a quote from Ibram Kendi, who just has a book called Anti-Racist. And step number one is be an anti-racist. I want you to look at this quote with me. Here's what he says. What's the problem with being, quote unquote, not racist? It's a claim that signifies neutrality. I am not a racist, but neither am I aggressively against racism. But there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. One either allows racial inequalities, racial, excuse me, racial, racial iniquities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial iniquities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of, quote unquote, not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. Kendi's book is a, a great place to start. But you can do this. You can ask questions. You can listen. You can donate. You can find a way to connect with people of color in your community. You have, most importantly, you have the power and the way of Jesus as your example. Acts 12, this story ends with Peter in jail and a miraculous releasing from prison. But in the first few verses, James dies this horrific death. And we're left to struggle with like, why does James die? And why does Peter get out? And in the sovereignty of God, atrocities are allowed to happen. But nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. James, the apostle's life, is not wasted. As Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And nothing is wasted In George Floyd's death, we see that nothing is wasted. Justice rolls on. And friends, you can be a part of it. You can do simply this. I'm not going to give you a list of things to do anymore, but you can just Google 75 things 
white people can do for racial justice. There's an article that is filled with incredible suggestions and one of them will be like really exciting to you. I believe that. I'm so proud of you, Heartland, for staying in the fight. Those who do not have ears to hear this hard truth, this message, have left the live stream long ago. At their first moment of discomfort and dis-ease. But you who remain are willing to do the hard work. To reverse the tide of systemic racial injustice. And to lift, use your power to lift others up. We're going to turn now to remembering this final meal. And Seth Davidson is going to lead us in communion. And there's no moment like communion to stand in solidarity with Jesus who came for all. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our example. You came to be for everyone. And so we take up your model, Jesus, to be for everyone and to look for ways to use our power to help those who are being crushed right now. And so we lean on heroes like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who can run into the war knowing that you have them secure and that they can do something to save those who need the most help. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen.